Good afternoon. Good to see you guys. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to Zoe Church. Even if you're not new, welcome. Uh, but if you forgot my name or you don't know it, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And we hope you can stick around a little bit so we can welcome you and so we can get to know you a little bit after service. If you don't want to, it's cool too, but we hope you will. Last week, we finished our series through 1 Samuel, and uh, we're going to preach 2 Samuel too, okay? Also, we're going to do 2 Samuel also, and uh, it's going to take us all the way to the end of the year. I think, according to our calendar, it'll take us to the week or maybe two weeks before Christmas of 2022. But since we're kind of in this in-between period, kind of this intermission, I'm calling it, um, we're going to take a little bit of a break. I know we just got back into 1 Samuel, um, but we're going to do something else for a few weeks, and then we'll jump back into 2 Samuel, and then we'll just run with it all the way to the end. Um, but we're going to do a, a short series in the middle, uh, and the reason we're doing this is kind of multifaceted. So one, the books of Samuel overall are going to take us about two years, okay, which is not super long, maybe. Um, but in thinking about it, that's two years in just two books, really one book in the Hebrew, two years in the Old Testament. And we did Proverbs a little bit in the summer last year, but it's been all Old Testament. And we want to teach the entire counsel of God. So we're going to be taking a short trip, you could say, into the New Testament, just for a little bit. Okay, we're going to be there for a little bit, then we'll jump back into Second Samuel. And then the second reason, number two, why we're doing this has to do with where we're at as a church. Okay, now that's not the only reason, but this is a reason. Zoe's changed a lot in the past, I don't know, year and a half or so. We're meeting in a new building. A lot of you guys don't even know what the old building was, but if you don't know, it was literally next door. It was a Rockbridge Church or Church Life right over there. Um, a good chunk of you uh, started coming when we were meeting here. Uh, you came in this area and you kind of know these people and you have your pew but for the first four years or so of the church we were somewhere else it was completely different and while we're no mega church or anything like that um, we have grown exponentially since the beginning so when we first started zoe it was maybe like 30 people total including kids and i remember sometimes if people are like sick like a lot of people are sick right now like if it was today like five years ago I'd be preaching to maybe eight people, and I would just be acting like it's a whole crowd, you know? But eight people total, so it was very, very small, and it might feel small now, but it was super small. So things have changed a lot. Like, I remember Easter this past year was the most people we ever had. I was like, are we a megachurch, you know? And last week, there are a million people out, and we still had more people, apparently, according to the ushers. So it's crazy. Things are different. And, you know, it's good, all right? It's really good. We've been praying since the beginning that God would bring who he wants to bring, and he brought you guys. So you guys are the answer to my prayer, to Eric's prayer, to James's prayer. And we know James is a righteous man, so it must be good. But we praise God, okay? It's good. It's just... Because things have changed a lot, because the faces are different, because the location is different, a lot's changed, we want to make sure that we're kind of shoring up the foundation a little bit, kind of consolidating a little bit, getting, uh, kind of making sure that we're getting on the same page, that we understand what we're aiming for, that those of us who are newer or older or however long you've been here, maybe you're visiting, we just want to make clear what our spiritual direction as a church 
It's supposed to be and hopefully going to be. So all that being said, we're going to be spending a few weeks talking about the church, what it is, what it's supposed to be according to the word of God. Now, the thing is that Zoe, right, our bread and butter is exposition, right? Opening up the word, going through it, explaining it. We don't really normally do any topical series. Like, let's just get Jesse's thoughts on what the church is. So that's not what we're going to be doing, okay? Even though hopefully I would have sound thoughts and not heretical ones. But this series, even though it's on a topic, the church, it's not going to be topical in the traditional sense. Instead, what we're going to do is we are going to open up the scriptures and we're going to preach on all the metaphors that the church or the, the New Testament gives us for the church. And maybe you can rattle off some in your brain right now, right? The bride of Christ, the body, the household of God, etc. We're going to go through every single one. There's not a ton, so it'll take us a few weeks, but we're going to go through every single inspired image that God himself has given us in his word to know what the church is supposed to look like according to him, the body, a pillar, a family, etc. Okay, so sound all right? If it's not, I mean, we probably won't change, but if you all hate it, maybe we'll think about it. We're calling this series Ecclesia, and if you know, you know. If you don't know, it's okay, you'll get why as we get into it. Um, but if you could open your Bibles for this first week to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew 16. I know I just said we're going to go over the metaphors of the church, but this first week is not going to be a metaphor at all. Instead, I think we need to enter the series by going to the first passage in the Bible where the word church explicitly appears. Matthew 16. It's the first time in the entire Bible that we see the word church show up. Matthew 16. We'll be in verses 13 through 20. Maybe mostly in verse 18, but 13. Let me read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this afternoon as a church, as one of the many churches that exist in the world, God, but we know that ultimately there is only one church made up of all those who confess that Jesus is the Christ. And God, we know that we are not who we should be yet, but we ask, God, that you would use your word to form us and to transform us. 
I pray that you would, as we just read, build your church. And I pray, God, that you would use Zoe for your purposes and for your glory. God, we look to you during this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me start with a question. What would you say is your ideal church? Kind of a dangerous question. I feel like I'm kind of fanning the flames of discontentment in all of you. But what would you say is your ideal church? I hear Zoe out there. No. Thanks, guys. It's okay. I understand. It's a thought experiment. But your perfect church that had everything that you wanted, what would you say? I'll be honest. When I was a kid, I grew up going to church my whole life. But when I was a kid, I hated church. Okay, there was really nothing that I liked about it. Okay, I went to this church, and there are a few people around my age. I had some peers, but we didn't really click that well, so it wasn't that fun to hang out with them. Plus, we would show up, and we'd listen to a pastor, and he'd be preaching this super long sermon, and I didn't really enjoy it that much. And the thing is, you know, my parents, they were heavily involved in church. They were Christians before I was born. Right? They taught us all these different things. Uh, they read the Bible to us. I think we memorized something like 100 verses together as a family. I don't even remember how many verses or the verses, um, but we did that. Uh, they served. So I went to church a lot. I was there a lot, uh, and I didn't like it. Okay? I enjoyed maybe like three total minutes of church in my younger years. But I was there. I was there at church. And we would show up, and uh, I knew the drill, right? We, we'd sit down or whatever, and some guy would come up, and he would say some stuff from the Bible, and then we would stand up, and there'd be words on a screen, and we, we'd just be standing there singing these words to the screen. And no one's singing super loud at our old church, so I felt like if I sang, then everyone could hear me. And as, like, a 10-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old, you don't really want that, okay? If I wanted to sing a solo, I would have gone into singing. So I didn't really enjoy that. And then I would zone out during the sermon. I would get really good at looking ahead with my eyes open, looking like I was paying attention, not sleeping, but allowing all the words that the pastor was saying to just go in one ear and out the other. In fact, I, felt, I feel pretty impressed with myself that I could listen to so many sermons and literally remember nothing. Uh, I was friends with Jeff Wada growing up, and Jeff actually was a Christian. So Jeff was like, do you remember that one time in high school when this pastor was preaching the sermon on Jonah? I was like, let me stop you right there. I don't remember a single sermon that I ever heard back in those days, but God bless you, my friend. There was this other church, though. There was another church that I found out about that seemed different. And I, I discovered this church when I was in middle school. Uh, this church was different, and also, in my mind, it was world better. It was so much better. See, what happened was I went to this Christian summer camp, and there were kids from all over the place, from different churches, but a lot of the kids, a big group of the kids were all from this one church, and they were different. They were super close, for one. Okay, it seemed like they really enjoyed going to church. They enjoyed each other's company. Uh, they went to youth group. They would serve together in the vacation Bible school that their church put on. And kind of the kicker for me was that all these kids, or I guess we were teenagers at this point, they had known each other so long and they knew each other so well that they all actually had like church-specific nicknames for each other. I'd never seen that before, but because they had grown up together, they all kind of called each other different things based on memories and stuff like that. So they were that close. And honestly, I envied it. At our church, my peers were just as disengaged as me, 
But at this church, this group of kids, right, or teenagers, they liked it. They listened to the sermons. They served a little bit. When the worship leader came up and started leading songs, they actually sang without self-consciousness. It blew my mind. Some of them even started learning to play instruments to serve. And it wasn't just these kids. At the summer camp, many of the leaders that I looked up to who volunteered and, and even some of the people who were preaching the word, they were from this same church. And they cared about us. They loved God. They were pointing us in a certain direction. Everything about this church seemed like a place that I wanted to go to. And funny enough, I was looking up this church this week, and they're, they're looking for a new pastor. So pray for me. I'm going to be applying, and uh, hopefully I'm out of here. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, they actually are hiring. I'm not applying, okay? Things have changed. That church isn't my ideal church now, of course. Back in the day, it was. But here's the thing. I know that for you guys, that's probably not your ideal. What I liked as a teenager probably isn't what you want right now as a parent or as a grandparent, as a husband or a wife, as a kid, even a teenager who's Gen Z or whatever. What is your ideal church? As a thought experiment again, okay, but what is your perfect church? Maybe your mind goes to a past church. I know a lot of people's does, not like me, but maybe you grew up at a church that you loved with your family. And every church that you go to now, every church that you are a part of, that you belong to, you judge it based on the standard of that old church, that old memory, the good old days. Or maybe your mind goes to a well-known church. A lot of people who visit Zoe, they visit because they see that me and Eric went to the Master's Seminary, John MacArthur's Seminary. And in their minds, they're thinking, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's Church. They come here expecting John MacArthur, and then they see basically what you're seeing right now. And uh, I'll just say, we've had people literally get up and just leave in the middle of a sermon. I know, can you just stay uh, another hour? I know, it takes a long time. But they left right halfway through the service, no joke. Maybe your mind goes to a place that you never found. You've kind of been stacking all these things. You have these experiences. I don't like this. I didn't really like that. That was a bad experience. But you have this blueprint, and you're hoping that it exists in the real world. There will be enough friends for my kids, but also a lot of opportunities for my spouse and I to connect with peers, but also older people to mentor us and younger people that we can mentor. And it'll have many opportunities to serve, but not too much pressure to serve. They'll preach the word, but it'll also be relevant to what I'm going through and kind of dealing with the topics that I'm interested in. The musical worship will be theologically sound, emotionally engaging, and also high quality, but not so high quality that it feels like a performance, and not so emotional that it feels manipulative. I've thought about it too, okay? I call this church Goldilocks Community Church, not too hot, not too cold, just right. The thing is, for all of us, just right is different. The funny thing is, I planted this church I mean, I was part of the planning team, and even Zoe wasn't exactly what I wanted because James and Eric, they couldn't see the vision, right? They couldn't get it. (laughs) Anyway, here's the thing. It's not bad to have an ideal church in mind. It's not wrong. It's not sinful to have preferences and opinions and convictions. We all do. But let me ask you this one simple question as we kick off this series. Where... Does Jesus fit into all of that? 
If you're thinking about it, where did Jesus fit into everything that you were thinking about these past few minutes? Look, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're in the book of Matthew. Matthew is where Jesus first brings up the word church. And it's important that we start at the start, not with our ideas, not with our thoughts or our convictions, even if these things might be right and good and true. But we start where we need to start, which is with him and his word. So let's get into it. Three points from the text. First, the conversation. Second, the confession. Third, the crucified Christ. Let's get into it. First, the conversation. The conversation, which challenges us to get outside of ourselves a little bit. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we're just dropping right into the middle of this book. So let me just get us situated a little bit. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel that we read, tells the story of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by this point in the story, we're kind of in the middle of the life part. He has been on the scene for a while. He started his ministry, and he's been teaching unlike anyone has ever taught before. He's been doing things that are hardly believable. He's been opening up the eyes of the blind. He's been making paralyzed people walk. Israel is a buzz. And yet by this point, 16 chapters in, not a single person has put it together for themselves. Matthew has told us, but not a person who is walking with Jesus, who has seen him, has put it together that Jesus is different. I mean, they know he's different. They know he's special. But how different and how special? So Jesus decides it's time to ask his disciples, his 12 followers, closest followers, what's the word on the street about me, verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, so people have all these ideas, none of which were right. So verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, stop here for a second. Think about this, okay? This is the first passage in the entire Bible where the church is explicitly brought up, and it starts with a conversation, but what is the conversation about? Who is the conversation about? It's not a trick question, okay? It's the simplest answer that you can give. It's about Jesus. Who do people say that he is? Who do you say that he is? See, At a simple level, the conversation in this text that we went to first in this series about what the church is, is actually about Jesus first. And yet, let me tell you about a conversation I had once about church. I've told this story before, but it was in the old building, so it was a while ago. Years ago, I was a pastor at this church called Lighthouse uh, in California, and that's the church that actually planted Zoe. And I was there through my seminary years and all of that. And I was uh, what they called the college pastor. There were some universities around Lighthouse. And there would be these college students who would come out to our church. And we'd have a little college fellowship and stuff like that. It was interesting. Um, and one of the most interesting things about college ministry is that every, four, or every year, the senior class would graduate and just leave. Right? So it was constantly turning over. Um, But then every year also, these new freshmen would show up, these 18-year-olds who were out of high school for the first time. They were uh, away from their parents, and they had to find new churches 
because they were moving, right? So they would show up at college, and then they would look for a new church, and inevitably some of them would show up at Lighthouse to check it out. That's what they call it. They called it church hopping because they would have this list of churches, and they would just hop from church to church to church to see which one they wanted to go to. And this one time, this one fall, this one guy came up to me, and he just cut right to the chase. He said, hey, you're, you're the college pastor here at Lighthouse. Sell me on Lighthouse. Tell me all the reasons why I should bless you with my prayer. He didn't say that part. But he said, tell me all the reasons why I should come here. Like, what makes Lighthouse better than all these other churches that I'm checking out? Right? Sell me on it. Give me your best pitch. Go. Honestly speaking, this was probably one of my least favorite experiences as a pastor of all time. It was terrible. And the reason why wasn't so much the pushiness of it, though he was kind of pushy. It wasn't the rudeness. It was the way he so crassly kind of put it out there, something that I had feared for these freshmen, is that for him and for them, church is simply a product to shop for. More like church shopping, not church hopping. Am I right? Like a car or for a phone, you research your options, make a list of the pros and cons, weigh the benefits, and you shop. Now, I wish this was an isolated incident. In a way, it was. Okay, no one's ever been that straightforward with me about it since then. But the truth is, I have this sort of conversation fairly regularly as a pastor. A visitor once asked me a ton of questions about Zoe. And if he liked the answers, he would end the question, or after my response, he would say, I think I can be happy about that. I was like, thank you. That's great. Church shopping. Now, I mean, we are a church plan. A lot of people are moving to the area. Of course, you need discernment in looking for a new church. I'm not faulting you for asking questions. You're like, oh, man, was I asking questions about the church? It's okay. Okay, you can ask questions. That's part of the reason why I'm here, to tell you about the church. It's cool. That's not what I'm getting at. All I'm saying is, when we talk about church, read the text. When we talk about church, read the text, and let's ask a more important question. In the Bible, where does the conversation about church start? Does it start with what we can be happy with? Or does it start with Jesus? You know, I understand how this might be coming across. Church is about Jesus. Okay, the sky is blue, too. I already knew that, okay? And I think you guys already know that I'm not trying to I'm not trying to act like you don't know that. I'm not trying to make it painfully basic. But let me put it this way. It's the NFL playoffs right now. Do you know what the Super Bowl trophy is called? It's called the Lombardi Trophy, and it's named after one of the most famous coaches in football history, Vince Lombardi. Now, Vince Lombardi, one of the things that he was known for, besides being a good coach, was what kind of coach he was. And every season, even if they had just won the championship, Every season, the first practice of the year, he would start with the most basic of basics. In fact, to emphasize his point, he would gather these professional football players, these even uh, these champions, these all pros, even in the group, and he would hold up a football in front of them, and he would say, gentlemen, this thing right here is called a football. And it was the secret to his success. He didn't, want to, uh, he didn't want to take anything for granted, especially the most important thing, the football. So, okay, we'll move on in a moment, okay? But understand that this is where we have to start. 
We have to start here. This sermon and this series, Matthew 16, is our, this is a football passage. Okay, if we don't start with Jesus, then I don't even know what we're talking about. Church starts with Jesus, and may we never take that for granted. Never. It's so easy to do, though. It's insanely easy to do. And you have churches, and, and these are good things, but you have churches that get off track a little bit, and then a few years later, they're so far from churches about Jesus. And you see it. Churches that are all about helping the poor. Churches that are all about making sure that you have a great family. Churches that are all about self-help, making sure that you improve your life. Churches that are all about politics. You have churches that are all about uh, I guess that's everything that I was going to say. But anyway, nothing wrong with these things per se. Some of these things are even more important or even are even important according to Scripture. But the truth is, you can have a homeschool co-op. You can have a political rally. You can have a TED Talk that will enlighten you. You can have a food kitchen. You can have a social club where you can make friends. But that's not fundamentally what church is. And the thing is, they all have Jesus in capital letters on the website. But the focus, the passion is elsewhere. And you know why this is? Because the people in the church have a focus and a passion that's elsewhere. Look, can I be real? A lot of people that I meet, a lot of Christians that I meet, even here, and I'm not trying to call out anyone individually, okay? That wouldn't be cool. And I see it in my own heart. A lot of us, we're not really about Jesus first. Jesus is not the first thing that comes to mind. Jesus is not where the conversation starts. I mean, think about your conversations when it comes to church, even the ones that are inside your own mind. Do I like the songs? Do, does the music make me feel connected? Do I like the preaching? Is it interesting? Am I learning something new? Do I feel encouraged enough? Am I being challenged enough? Is it too long? Is it too short? Is it too dry? Is it too emotional? Is it relevant? Is it trying too hard to be relevant? Am I happy with the theology and secondary and tertiary matters? Are the people friendly? Are they mature? Do they reach out to me? Did someone wrong me? I was sick. Did people care? Do my kids have enough friends? Do they have enough fun? Do they have too much fun? Are they being taught enough? What kind of programs are there? What kind of support is there from my family? When are we going to focus more on marriage? When are we going to focus more on children? When are we going to focus more on current issues? When are we going to focus more on apologetics? How about outreach? What about relationship building? When are we going to focus on getting a building? How does this church equip me to use my gifts? How comfortable are the seats? Do I get a good experience? And so on. Again, not saying that these are unimportant questions at all. Okay, I hope you're not hearing that. Some of these questions you do need to ask at some point, and they are important. Just, again, we got to go back to this. Where is Jesus in all of that? I know I thought about these same things, and it's all about me. It's not about Jesus. So let's wrap this point and move on. The first thing we need to talk about when we talk about church isn't our preferences, And it isn't even our own particular convictions about things, though those are important. Because the first thing we need to talk about isn't even us at all. So ask yourself, really ask yourself, when it comes to church, when it comes to finding a church or being a part of a church, where does the conversation start for you? 
And if we're going to start with Jesus, we need to deal next with his actual question. Who do you say that he is? And this is the second point. Okay, so the first point, the conversation, it's about Jesus, okay? That's the foundation. It's about Jesus. Second point, the confession. Jesus begins a conversation about himself, and it leads to a confession from Peter. And this point is about what it means to actually make church about Jesus. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And he asked all 12 of them. But before any of them could venture an answer, Simon Peter, the most impetuous one of the 12, he offers up, he speaks up as he always does. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is the first time this happens in the entire book of Matthew where someone just puts it together and says it. He says, you are the Christ. Now, we're going to talk about this because in the Greek, you is emphasized. He sees Jesus standing before him, Jesus the carpenter turned rabbi, but he says, you're more than that. You are the Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? A little refresher. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, Christ is a title. Okay, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew term, Messiah, which literally means anointed one. So we were in 1 Samuel, we were talking about the first kings of Israel, we were talking about Saul and David. When they became kings, they were anointed. They became the Lord's anointed, anointed ones, lowercase. So when you hear the word Christ, you should be thinking the word king. I don't think we always make that connection nowadays, we're so familiar with Christ, but that's what uh, Peter is saying. You are the king we've been waiting for. He's essentially kneeling before Jesus, and Jesus accepts it, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's a breakthrough. Now, verse 18, the moment we've been waiting for. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, no exaggeration. I'm just going to put this out there. This passage is probably the most written about passage in all of Matthew. And Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount, uh, on, uh, Sermon on the Mount in it. But this passage has so much scholarship, so much debate. There's so many pages that have been written about it, mostly because of this verse. It might even be the most written about passage in the entire Bible, honestly. What's the big deal? Well, if you're a Roman Catholic theologian, This is where you go to to argue that Jesus said right here that the church is built on Peter, who was the first pope of many. So, uh, guys, you guys got to change your mind about the pope. And now let's talk about this. First, okay, there's something to that. Okay, first, he does say you are Peter to Peter. Why does he say that? Do I say that to you guys? You are Peter. Why does he say you are Peter? Well, the reason why, partly, is because Peter's name was actually Simon. That's what his mommy and daddy named him in the hospital when he was born. They said, your name is going to be Simon. And Jesus said, no, it's not. Jesus gave him a nickname when he called him. And in Aramaic, that nickname is Kephas or Cephas. Okay, you might have heard this before. Cephas, and it means rock. And the Greek translation of Kephas or Cephas is rock. So what Jesus was saying is, I know your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. Essentially, that's what he's saying. I'm going to call you rock as a nickname. It's kind of like 
Okay, it's not his name, but it's a nickname. It's like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, Peter the Rock Barjona. Okay, there you go. You get the picture. So Jesus says, you are Peter. He brings up the nickname. You are the rock. You are Rocky. And then he says, hear it, on this rock I will build my church. And Roman Catholic theologians say, well, there you go. The first thing you got to know about church is Jesus. Second, you got to know the Pope. That's what it is. There is a human being that rules over the church. It just makes sense. He says, you are rocky and on this rock. And this is the justification for the popes that have been leading the Catholic Church for the past 2,000 years. You can kind of see where it comes from. And the church actually followed the pope for 1,000 years. But, okay, we're Protestant. And both the Protestant church and the Eastern Orthodox church broke off from Rome. And a big part of that was actually because they rejected the Roman Catholic teaching about the Pope. And here's why. Okay, I feel like we got to get into this a little bit nitty gritty. Where in the text, let me ask you, does it say that Peter will pass on his position to other people? I didn't see it. I mean, Peter, he was an apostle. He was called by Jesus to follow him in the flesh. And the apostles were foundational to the church. Ephesians 2.20, Paul says it. The foundation of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But I think somewhere I missed the part where Jesus came back down and he called every new pope to follow him as the leader of the apostles. It's not there. So there's some jumping to conclusions there. But then also, okay, if that's the case, what does this even mean? Well, what happens in the very next passage? Do you guys know? You can look at the heading in your Bible if you want to check it out. I might not even say. You can read the next few verses. Peter messes up right after this, and Jesus calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. He went from you are Peter to you are Satan in a moment, because clearly Peter is a fallible person. He messes up. And if the church rises and falls on the person of Peter, well, have you read the stories about Peter? That's a pretty shaky foundation if he is it. So in the context, here's what Jesus is saying. And I promise this has something to do with how we understand church. But in context, Jesus is focusing on not the person Peter, but the pointing Peter. Not the person Peter, but the pointing Peter. Let me explain that. What this means is that Jesus isn't talking about resting the entire weight of the church entirely on an imperfect man. He's talking about resting the entire weight of the church on these words that Peter speaks when he says the truth, his confession. It's his confession. It's him pointing to the true identity of Jesus. That's when Peter is truly living up to his name as the rock. And when he's not, Get behind me, Satan. And this is what the reformers argued. This is what some of the church fathers clearly said, too. That it's the confession that the church is built on. So what does this mean for us? Well, let me tell you a story. When I was in seminary, we went to orientation. And we were were all there at these tables. And they were like, we're going to introduce every single one of you. So I want you to stand up and say your name and, I don't know, say your favorite hobby. or I don't know what they, something like that. Uh, There were a hundred of us, so it took a long time. And I don't remember a lot of these guys, but there was one guy we all remembered because his name was spelled different. So he stood up, and his name was Jim, but he had two M's on his name tag. 
And that's the first thing he said. He said, hi, my name is Jim, double M. Jesus is my Messiah. You guys get it? Because J-I-M-M, Jesus. Okay, you guys get it. You guys are smart. Okay, sorry about that. Jesus is my Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, translated into the Greek. It means Christ. And when you hear Christ, what should you think? King. That's what he told us. His name is Jesus is my king. And it's on this rock that the church is built. Do you follow? The church is the people who confess that Jesus is the king. And not just the king, but their king. Nothing less. See, it's not just that the church is about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. It's that the church belongs to Jesus too. Notice he says, on this rock, I will build what? My church. And we finally get to the word church. I know it took a while. The word church in Greek is the word ekklesia, hence the sermon title. We're not that creative. Ekklesia. Now, ekklesia literally is two words smashed together. So the word ek, which means out, and the word kaleo, which means called. So literally, ekklesia means the called out people or the called out ones. But in Jesus' day, it meant something else, okay? It didn't actually mean its parts anymore. In the New Testament, in the first century, in Greek, what ecclesia meant simply was an assembly. An assembly. Now, what's an assembly? Where do you hear that word, assembly? We don't hear it that often. Okay, maybe an assembly line. I remember I was in elementary school, and every once in a while we would have school assemblies and what that meant was everyone had to show up in one place, in the cafeteria or on the field for like some performance or a special announcement or something. But an assembly was when everyone had to go together, when everyone had to show up. I was thinking for most of you, let's be honest, when you hear the word assemble, what you think of is the Avengers. I know you guys, right? We all pretend we don't watch movies and we only read Christian books all the time. But the most popular movies of all time. Like, the Avengers, they're Earth's mightiest heroes, whether or not they're together. But every few years, they team up for a blockbuster movie, make a billion dollars, whatever. And what they say is, they literally say, Cap says it, Avengers, assemble, right? You get together. And that's the idea in Ecclesia. It's about the assembly, getting together, gathering. Now, there are layers to this, really two main perspectives to this. You see this in the New Testament. First, you see that there is a spiritual aspect to it. It starts with a confession. We are the people who gather around this confession that Jesus is not just a good teacher. Right? He's not just an example of love. He's not just a moral philosopher, bar none. He is actually the Christ. He is our king. All true Christians gather around and are united by this confession. But remember, the word itself is ecclesia for a reason. And the word isn't abstract. So it's not just spiritual. There's a necessary physical aspect to this. An assembly, by definition, must what? Assemble. And that's why you see in the New Testament, even though the church spreads far and wide, you see these local gatherings of believers. And this is why we went to 1 Corinthians in our scripture reading. The letter is written to the church of God in Corinth. There is one spiritual church that is united across the world, across time by this confession, but it exists in localities, in places. 
for the church to be the church, for the ecclesia to be the ecclesia, for the assembly to be a true assembly, there needs to be an actual gathering. So you see the church gathering on the Lord's Day from the very beginning. So you want a definition of church. Before we get into the metaphors, let's stick with the actual literal definition. It's the people who bow the knee to Jesus Christ gathered together. The assembly. Now, let me ask you, do you know any Christians who don't go to church? Professing Christians that forsake the assembly? I think we all do. And sure, we understand that salvation is not by works, right? It's not by perfect attendance at church or anything like that. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But here's the thing. If salvation is in Christ alone, Christ alone, our King alone, it means we need to actually agree that Jesus is our King. We need to be like Jim. Jesus is my Messiah. It's not enough to just like Jesus in theory. It's about bowing before him. And if you do that, if you say that Jesus is your king, your Christ, and he's the one who brought up his assembly, he used that word on purpose, and the question is, where are you at? Right? The king called. It's kind of like this. Do you remember the book of Esther? Esther, you don't have to know everything about the book of Esther, but do you remember how it starts? It starts with a king and a queen of the Persian Empire. And the king wants to summon his wife. Long story short, he wants her to do something. She refuses, so he basically just kicks her out from being queen. And Esther replaces her. And Esther, she's scared to show up in the king's presence. They're married, right? She's the queen. But because he's the king, she knows that she can't just do whatever she wants because he is the king. See, in monarchies, in empires, you understand the power that that title holds. Now, Jesus is a gracious and merciful king, okay? He's not petty like the Persian king. It's not about being legalistic. You don't always have to be at church. If you're watching it on the stream, you're not in sin. It's okay if you're sick or you take a vacation or whatever. But it is about the posture of your heart. Fundamentally, there is no Christian who does not recognize the authority of Christ because it's implicit in the name. So if you're here, are you here to bow down to him? And see, here's where it gets really practical. This is where the rubber meets the road. If we're going to make church about Jesus, specifically the real actual Jesus, the one who is the Christ, then we need to reckon with what that means. It means church is not my will be done, but it's thy will be done, his will. And so we got to ask ourselves a different set of questions. we got to ask ourselves, when it comes to church, what does he want? When it comes to music, what does he want? He doesn't say that much about the sound. Instead, Ephesians 5.19 says, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Worry about how genuine you are when you're singing and make sure that it's heartfelt to God. What about relationships? Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Before we think about our people loving me, our people caring about me, think about are you part of that one anothering? Are you stirring people up? We're supposed to think about how we can help them and bless them. It's a total paradigm shift from what would I like to what would he like? From what would I want to what does he want? From what am I getting out of this to what am I contributing to this? From what are my thoughts on this to what does his word say? And that's what we're going to try to do in this series. 
It's not our church. It's his. Always has been. And this leads to the third and final point quickly. The crucified Christ. The crucified Christ, which helps us deal with the reality of church, which is pretty far from ideal. I came across this letter, um, more like an email, I guess, written from a high school girl to her friend about her church experience. And it's kind of making the rounds on like sermon illustration websites. And I've had this for a long time and I've been saving it, but I want to read it for you right now. I attended your church yesterday. Although you had invited me, you weren't there. I looked for you, hoping to sit with you. I sat alone. A stranger, I wanted to sit near the back of the church. A stranger, I wanted to sit near the back of the church, but those rows were all packed with regular attenders. An usher took me to the front. I felt as though I was on parade. During the singing of the hymns, I was surprised to note that some of the church people weren't singing. Between their sighs and yawns, they just stared into space. Three of the kids that I had respected on campus were whispering to one another throughout the whole service. Another girl was giggling. I really didn't expect that in a church. The pastor's sermon was very interesting, although some members of the choir didn't seem to think so. They looked bored and restless. One kept smiling at someone in the congregation. There were several people who left and then came back during the sermon. I thought, how rude. I could hear the constant shuffling of feet and doors opening and closing. The pastor spoke about the reality of faith. The message got to me, and I made up up my mind to speak to someone about it after the service. But utter chaos reigned after the benediction. I said good morning to one couple, but their response was less than cordial. I looked for some teens with whom I could discuss the sermon, but they were all huddled in a corner talking about the newest music group. My parents don't go to church. I came alone yesterday hoping to find a place to truly worship and feel some love. I'm sorry, but I didn't find that in church. I won't be back. Now, there's a lot you could say about that. In fact, I could probably get all passive-aggressive about that. Did you hear she said the sermon was very interesting, not even regular interesting. That's not why I brought this up at all. I didn't bring this up to shame or to guilt you. You can walk up and go to the bathroom. It's okay. I preached for a long time. Here's why I brought it up for a couple of reasons. One, the church holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is another loaded verse, but the general gist is the keys have to do with locking and unlocking, just like keys do, opening and closing. That's the idea. And what Jesus is saying is that the church has the responsibility under the leadership of the apostles, excuse me, of opening and closing heaven to people. Because the church has the true message of the gospel. So the church can open up heaven to people by preaching that gospel faithfully. You see this in Acts 2. Peter does it. Peter, the first pope, just kidding. Peter, the leader of the apostles, he preaches this sermon and thousands of people come to Christ. He opens up the doors of heaven to them. He's used like that. And the church also has the ability to close. And not that the church can decide your salvation, but in church discipline, the church can actually remove people from the assembly. See, the whole talk about binding and loosing, here's what we need to know for our purposes today. There are eternal consequences to what the church does, even to what the church is for the world. 
that girl who wrote that letter, maybe she was approaching the church like a consumer. Maybe she was being overly judgmental. I think maybe she was. But can we blame her? She's not a Christian. She doesn't know anything about church. She came to see for herself, and the church is supposed to exist to open the gates of heaven to a lost and dying world. Did we do that? And this is the second reason why I read that letter. Reason number two. The church has a heavy responsibility, and we can get in the way. Look at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would you do that? Okay, Peter just said it. It was true. Uh, He was celebrated for saying it. If he is the Christ, why keep it a secret? Well, look at the very next passage. I want to read it to you. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, this is the first time he talks about the cross. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. He tries to correct Jesus. No way, you won't suffer and be killed. Why are you so defeatist? You are the Christ. You're powerful. We got your back. This will never happen. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the reason why Jesus told them to keep it a secret is because he knew that they they didn't fully get it. They didn't fully understand what it meant that he was the Christ. This is a terrifying reality. That you could be someone who likes Jesus. You can be someone who even professes that Jesus is the Christ, and yet you can still be a hindrance to what Jesus came to do and is still doing in this world. You can still be a hindrance with what Jesus wants to do with his church. And the crazy thing is you can actually be more like Satan than a Christian. And the word Christian, it means little Christ. You can be one who wittingly or not turns desperate souls away by your actions. Now, we've got to land this plane. So let's talk about why we are doing this series. Maybe some of you guys are looking for a new church. Um, then I think it's important that you think through what the Bible says about church, for sure. But most of you aren't. I know that. So why are we talking about this? Right? Why are we talking about what to look for in a church? What's ideal? What are we hoping to get out of this? What's the purpose? Well, our hope and the purpose is that we would all come to this understanding that the ideal church isn't something to be found. It's something that's built. It's something that's being built. And it's built by Jesus. I hope we all come to this understanding that the church It's not really a place to go to, but it's an assembly, a gathering of people. So what does that mean? It means that the church is being built one person, one sinner at a time, one degree of glory to the next. I read that letter ultimately, the third reason, because that's church. You could take it negatively or positively, whatever, but just take it objectively. That's church. People might not greet you the way that you want. People might not act the way that you want, or even the right way, even the way that Jesus wants. Why? Because we are sinners. And this is why Jesus said, 
to his disciples right after this, you know, I need to suffer and die. And they're like, no, 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 no. Why did he need to suffer and die, though? We know. Because we needed it. Because we are sinners under judgment. Because we can take the holiest of things and get bored of them. We can fail hard at being good witnesses. We could be satanic. Most of us, look, most of us have been hurt in church. Okay, I think almost everyone I've talked to who's been around church enough has had a bad experience, myself included. We've been wronged. Pastors might have failed you. I'm sure they did at another church. Just kidding. I'll fail you. Eric will fail you. James? Yeah. He might not. But leaders have been petty. We've served and been taken for granted. Maybe we've been criticized. Maybe someone said something to our kid that was totally out of line. And truth be told, if we're honest, we've done a lot of the same things. People have served us for years, never said thank you. We've grumbled, we've complained. Maybe we've even hurt people along the way. And you know what? It's not okay. It's not okay. But Jesus knows that it's not okay. And this is why there's no putting Jesus first. There's no confessing that he is Christ the King without going where he himself goes next to the cross. We are the people assembled around the Christ who was nailed to a cross for our sins. Church is imperfect, but it's his church. So, church, we can offer a hope to the world that literally doesn't exist anywhere else. We can be better by the power of his blood. That's why he died, to build his church. And we can be transformed into who he wants us to be in his ideal. And that's what we're going to talk about. We can be that pillar of truth. We can be that family, that household of God. We can be a temple of holy worship. We're doing this series because we're not who we should be. But by the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ, God will get us there. So let's close with this. The other day I saw a picture online. A bunch of families together just hanging out, I think celebrating an engagement or something. And I noticed that almost all of them grew up going to that church, the church that I coveted so much, my favorite church, the church I'm applying to. No, I'm not. But still, 20 years later, they're still friends. They're still hanging out. And honestly, I thought, you know, these guys are closer. They're better. They have better friends than most people will ever have in their lifetime because of this church. But then I was looking closer at the faces, and I realized that some of these guys, they don't go to church anymore. They're not following Christ at all. And then it made me realize something about myself. Not about the church, okay? That church is a good church. Even the best churches, they don't have a 100% conversion rate. That church preaches Christ. They are faithful. Many of those people still serve faithfully there. But I realized something, not about the church, but about myself. See, what I wanted, what I thought was ideal... All those years ago, had nothing to do with Jesus. It wasn't about following him as king. I wanted a tight circle of friends. I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted people to care about me. I wanted to enjoy it. I wanted to have fun. And I realized when I saw that picture that you can actually find those things apart from church. 
It might be hard to find, but you can find them outside of church. You could, you could help needy people outside of church. You could raise a pretty tight-knit, close family outside of church. You, you can be involved, maybe more involved, in political stuff outside of church. You can improve yourself outside of church. You can make lifelong friends, tighter friends than most people have outside of church. But you won't find heaven. You won't find forgiveness for all of your failings. And you won't find Jesus, the true Jesus, the crucified Christ, the one that we all need. So as we go into this series, this is the start. But as we go into it and as we close, I'm challenging you guys and challenging myself, all of us right now. Let's look for something more than those things. We could do those things anywhere. But this is church, so let's strive for something more. Let's put aside ourselves, and let's take these metaphors and images from the word of the living God, and let's be the church that he calls us to be. Let's be the church, and let's storm the gates of hell. Will you pray with me? God, your church is not perfect because we are not perfect. It's not a reflection of you and your holiness. It's a reflection of us and our sinfulness. But yet, yet, as we come to your word, we see, God, that there is grace and mercy. That there is forgiveness. And God, even though we are sinners, at the right time, Christ died for sinners like us. And he died to bring us into his body to be his people, to be adopted into your family, Father. So God, as people in process, I pray that you'd help us to lean into what the church is supposed to be, who we're supposed to be together. And I pray, God, that you would help us. We can't do this on our own. We are so easily distracted. We are so focused on ourselves. But God, there's forgiveness for that too. So God, I pray that as we sang, you would turn our eyes to Jesus. I pray, God, that you would lead us to him. And God, I pray that we would make everything we do here about his glory. And I pray, God, that you would honor that desire. God, we're thankful. We pray for your blessing and favor upon this series and upon this church, which isn't ours, it's yours. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.